Let's pray. Heavenly Father, teach us to see things from your perspective. In Jesus' name, amen. So great news for those of you who are procrastinators. Today is your day. Jesus says if you wait until the last minute and work even just one hour, you get the same pay as everybody else. At least that would be the literal interpretation of the parable. But of course Jesus has something completely different in mind and leave it to Jesus to spoil a perfectly good ending to a story. Once again, the lectionary jumped over an important clue that would help us understand what Jesus is saying and why it's not about procrastinators winning. In the verses immediately before our gospel, Peter is once again in rare form. And he's a little bit demanding and indignant. He comes up to Jesus and he says, look, we've left everything for you. So what's in it for us? If we connect this to the verses immediately following our text, where James and John's, John's mom show up and demand that Jesus give them positions of authority in heaven and honor, which of course you know, makes her also get honor and authority and all that, we begin to see that what's sandwiched in between the story for today is Jesus responding to the disciples. So when we are young, we want to be president or a surgeon or a pilot or a teacher or a ship's captain or a famous singer or actor. But we have no idea about the pressure and responsibility of such positions. What we really want is the power, the prestige, and the perks. Just like Peter, James, and John, who have already been singled out by Jesus from the other disciples. I mean, have you not counted the number of times it says, Jesus grabbed Peter, James, and John and took them off here. And Jesus grabbed Peter, James, and John and took them off there. They're already singled out. But now they're looking for even more honor and bonuses as a reward for trying hard. 35 years ago when I left the seminary, I wanted to be the district president of whatever district I was in. Or I wanted to be pastor of a really big church, maybe, maybe even president of the Senate. Time puts things into perspective. I've now seen what those positions do to the people who have borne the responsibility, make the decisions that nobody should have to make, and uh, carry the burden of those offices. I have a very different view these days. The work needs to be done. And it does come with some honor and some rewards. But it also exacts a price from those who hold the office. The disciples have no idea what they are asking, nor are they ready for the answer Jesus is about to give them. One of the biggest obstacles for those who think they are saved by doing things is it comes with an unspoken attitude of being better than those who haven't done as much as they have. When they get to heaven, there is going to be a list of the greatest people in the kingdom of God. And their name isn't going to be in the top ten, but they certainly expect it to be right up there. And they know it is going to be much higher than their friends and relatives and especially their neighbors because they didn't do nearly as much. To be saved by grace presents a totally different challenge. For instance, to someone who needs to be forgiven much, are they greater than someone who needs to be forgiven little? I know it sounds crazy, but it's a question that both Jesus and St. Paul bring up because even those who know they are saved by grace have this inbred thought about who's the greatest in the kingdom of God. Yeah, they keep turning grace upside down. It seems to be our specialty as humans. And yet to be saved by grace is exactly that, to be saved by grace. If you know Christ, is not a name but a title, and it means Savior, it means God, and Jesus is the name his mother and father gave him at the insistence of the angel, you see the difference between saying Christ saves and Jesus saves. 
Since Christ means God, that makes sense. God saves. And after all, isn't that what God is supposed to do? He's supposed to save his people? But Jesus saves is far more personal because someone named Jesus saved someone, whatever your name is. And by the way, he did it without any help from you because you hadn't even been born yet. Ephesians 1.4 says God saved us even before he created the world, which means God knew everything that you were going to do and he chose to save you anyway. That's Christ's righteousness. Now that brings us back to the parable of the vineyard workers. Paying close attention without trying to make too much of it because remember, you, twisting parables is a bad thing. We get a clearer picture. They didn't have temp agencies back then. So the laborers gathered at a designated spot and waited for somebody to hire them, kind of like all the slugs in the D.C. transportation system. The sooner you got there, the better your chance of getting chosen. But Jesus throws a curveball. Turns out there's one landowner who keeps coming back all day and is willing to hire anyone and everyone who's there. Even if they stumble into the marketplace tired and hungover and uncertain and sick, or maybe they can't even work. This isn't about being a hard worker or even a good worker. It's about being called to the work. Something else to note is the landowners, he pays a fair day's wage. Nobody in this story is underpaid or taken advantage of, which strangely enough is what actually leads to the whole scandal. The workers who showed up early and worked the longest in the heat of the day, they point out, got paid exactly what the owner had promised. We say, what's the problem with that? Well, those workers are upset because, well, those who didn't work as hard or as long as they did got the same pay. I'm sure there are lawyers who could point out some kind of breach of contract or worker discrimination or unfair labor practice. But that is only if this whole thing is about the pay. I know what you're thinking. How could it not be about the pay? But the truth is, it actually has nothing to do with the pay. See, one of the problems with parables is you can make them say whatever you want. You can twist and turn things pretty easily. Unless, of course, you have to interpret it in light of all the other stories and teachings around it. Which is why we needed to hear Peter telling Jesus, Look, we gave up everything for you, so what's in it for us? And James and John's mom wanting to make sure her kids were first in line in heaven and had all the glory and honor because then she would also be able to say, Those are my kids, and everybody would honor and glorify her. Wrong kind of kingdom, Jesus says. This kingdom is not about the pay. It's about the work. Ephesians 1.4 says we already got paid a long, well, long time before we were born. And by the way, heaven is heaven. And by the way, Ephesians 2.8 and 9, you'll say by grace through faith, this is not our work, it's the gift of God. And then it goes on to say, and we have this work that God prepared in advance for us to do, not to be saved, but because we're saved. And you know what? Heaven is heaven. There are not multiple levels like some kind of holy pyramid scheme. By the way, even when we talk about the levels of sanctification, it turns out the greatest aren't those who work the hardest or the longest. The greatest are those who became servants and had a childlike faith. Now, the punchline of the parable is when the owner says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? And then he follows it up with, or are you envious because I'm generous? Let that phrase push you out of your comfort zone. We may call this the parable of the vineyard workers, but it really should be called the parable of the vineyard owner. The universe is God's vineyard, God's table, God's kingdom, God's everything. An amazing verse that is often overlooked is from Colossians 1. It's one of my favorites. I know I got a lot, but this, this is beautiful. It says, 
Everything was created by him, Jesus, in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him and in him all things hold together. And by the way, the Greek word for holding together there means if God lets go, everything flies apart. Do you know why we don't get to make the guest list for heaven or decide who gets all those spiritual gifts? Because we would try to make things fair, at least according to our idea of fairness. Problem is, turns out we're biased. We even discriminate, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. We look at someone, we watch them for all of five minutes and decide what they deserve without giving them a second, a third, or a millionth chance. Well, well, let's actually just back it up and say either 49 or 490 based upon last week's sermon. But God isn't fair. God's love is a bit irrational. And if we're honest, it can appear irresponsible. John Newton, you know the guy who wrote Amazing Grace? Yeah, he was a slave ship captain. Oh, and don't forget St. Augustine, C.S. Lewis, and St. Paul, who all fought against the Christian faith. And I don't mean a little bit. I mean they were wholly against it. And then God's mercy got in the way. Because God's mercies are infinite and new every morning. Because we have been part of the church since we were born, or maybe our parents and grandparents, maybe even our great-grandparents were church members and churchgoers, a miracle is when a family member, a friend, or a co-worker who has been outside the church, never shown any interest in the church, in fact has often you know, denounced God in the church, suddenly says they found Jesus and are attending church now. And I know our smart alchemist wants to say, you didn't find Jesus, he's never been lost, but it, it's just wasted. Now, because we remember what they were like when they were teenagers or their college years, we're amazed that God would have them as a member of the church. He must have really lowered his standards. That's such nonsense. See, the real miracle is that any of us, notice that includes us, get to share in the work of God. See, the miracle is when God comes to the marketplace, pulls us out, hands us shovels, baskets, clippers, puts us to work. He trusts us, and he keeps coming back to the market at all the different hours, which represents the different stages of our life. And he is ready to grab hold of anyone and everyone who is there. Mm. If we want in on this kingdom, which is God's kingdom and not ours, if we want in on this holy work, we have to set aside our ideas about what we deserve and what others deserve and what it means to be fair and how you get in through the front door. What makes God's grace so offensive isn't who he leaves out, but who he lets in, and that starts with me and you. God came and got us. He didn't let us sit there waiting and waiting and hoping that somebody might claim us. He kept coming back over and over again to make sure he didn't miss anybody. 2 Peter 3 says God is patient. He doesn't want anyone to be lost. And by the way, if you haven't heard me say it before, the Greek word for anyone there means anyone, as in God doesn't want any single person to ever get lost. One of the truths of this parable is if God didn't come to find us, we would have all been lost. Yeah, and by the way, the word all there means all of us. To make sure you know that this wasn't just a one-off parable, we need to see this same story and how it's played out day after day. You see, God didn't just come to earth once in a stable in Bethlehem. He keeps coming over and over again. He's there at a baptism, whether it's the baptism of a baby or someone with gray hair. He shows up when we confess our sins and speaks his word of forgiveness to us. 
and the bread and the wine, the Bible says it's his body and his blood. He empties us of our sins and fills us up with himself. Psalm 51 says that there is no place we can go where God is not. C.S. Lewis reminds us that there is no when, talking about time, where God is not. And St. Paul says that not even the deepest darkness, darkest darkness can keep us from God's grace. The parable is such an expose, an honest portrayal of the church. Turns out a lot of us are entitled and windy, and we've got some significant issues about what we deserve. God loves us anyway. And what the parable says is we all received the same mercy and grace that none of us saw coming because we were all too busy worrying about what everyone else was doing and how much they got paid and whether they did as much work as we did. That's why we call it grace. The kingdom of God is founded not on the virtue and hard work of the workers, but on the unrestrained and lavish mercy of the God who came and got us because the vineyard wouldn't be the same without us. Yeah, if that doesn't cause you to stop and think, I don't know what is. The vineyard wouldn't be the same without us. Jesus' parables tell the same story over and over again. A king throws a wedding feast, and when the invited guests say no, he grabs anyone and everyone, including the houseless well, and the, those of ill repute and brings them in and feeds them a feast that is amazing. A sower wantonly and wastefully casts handfuls of seed all over the place, knowing that some of it won't sprout, but he's willing to take the chance. A father who runs down the road doesn't care what anybody thinks as his robes are flapping in the breeze and the smile and, and the, the shouts of joy are on his lips because his son who was lost is now found. The shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep to go and find the one who ran away. You see, it seems that God insists on always seeking and finding and saving the lost. This is the kingdom of heaven breaking into our world and into our lives. A kingdom where we don't get to decide who gets in and who doesn't. But it also means that no one gets to decide if we get in or not. A kingdom that is defined by the mercy of a God who is revealed in a cradle, a cross, an empty tomb, and also who is revealed in your life and your work. This kingdom is where sinners are reconciled to God and to one another, where we are called to the work of worship, which is not something we do just on Sunday, but the way we live both now and forever. It's the parable of the vineyard owner because he loves us in spite of us being us. And it turns out he loves all of the thems in spite of them being them. And so perhaps the only real response to such a parable is, well, thank God for grace and mercy. Because without it, we'd still be waiting for somebody to come and claim us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.